0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 289, Brunenburr. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Justin, Stephen, and Martin for signing up already. You can't just go to war. I mean, I guess you can, but it's not a good idea. War takes work. It takes planning. It takes preparation. War, to put it simply, is a pain in the ass. You have to really want it. And that workload only increases with the number of people involved. This might seem counterintuitive, because you might think that bringing the biggest army would make the task easier. And I'm sure it does make certain things easier, like flanking, reinforcements, enveloping, and that sort of thing. But if you've learned anything from the BHP, it's that war is more than battles. The battles are the flashpoints, the climaxes. But the war, the war is a grind. And the real work of war lies in supplies, maneuvering over long distances, and logistics. You can have the biggest army in the world, but if you can't get them where they need to go, and you can't keep them fed, clothed, sheltered, and armed while they get there, well, then the battle is unlikely to go your way, because war takes planning. And Olaf of Dublin, Constantine of Scotland, and Owain of Strathclyde were planning a big war. And considering that years had passed since Constantine had last attended one of Athelstan's councils, it's possible that the planning between these three kings may have been going on for years. Though, on the other hand, Olaf had only recently defeated Olaf Scrabbyhead of the Limerick Vikings, so it's also possible that Olaf figured that since he already had an army kitted out and prepped, he might as well continue his role, and Constantine and Ewain simply had to rush to catch up. We don't know, but whatever circumstances brought the kings of Dublin, Strathclyde, and Scotland together, And However they came to the decision to invade England, the fact remained that if they failed to adequately prepare for their war, it would be over before it began. And so they set about to their work. Olaf's methods were straightforward. He was working his way personally through his newly expanding kingdom, and demanding fighters from every area that he landed in. Owain and Constantine were different. They were relying on royal messengers to get the word out throughout their kingdoms. And these messengers would have carried orders to lords dictating what numbers of troops were expected, what types, and where they were to muster and by what date. Then the kings had to wait and just hope that their nobles would answer the call. And that wasn't guaranteed. Moreover, even if all the nobles did answer, this mustering took time. And so did gathering these armies into one location. It was a project that may well have taken weeks, if not months, to carry out. And while these invaders gathered their forces, Athelstan was in England. And if the legends are correct, he doesn't seem to have known what was coming. There are no signs in the record of him building a defensive force to counter the coming storm from the north. Even hundreds of years later, William of Malmesbury was at a loss to explain this lack of action, and he accused the king of falling prey to youthful overconfidence, which led him to abandon war for the pursuit of leisure. But if we look closer at the records, we see that Athelstan was actually busy. Possibly unaware of the threat that was building across his borders, Athelstan had turned to the affairs of state, to his law codes. And the number of legal pronouncements that he put out far eclipsed his predecessors, which suggests that this was a key area of interest for him. So while Olaf, Owain, and Constantine were building their armies, Athelstan was working out how to run his kingdom. And this included matters like what should happen to a thief after he's caught. And it turns out he should be put in prison for 40 days. And once those days were served, he could be ransomed for 120 shillings. It makes sense. But meanwhile, the kings of Strathclyde and Scotland were waiting for their warbands to arrive. Chief among their concerns was likely that at no point could they be exactly sure how many warriors would actually arrive, nor could they really predict the condition the warriors would be in. They could make guesses. They could hope that everyone would arrive well-fed, reasonably rested, and not passing around too many diseases. But until those banners appeared on the horizon, there was no way of actually knowing. And that was a problem for the kings, because this wasn't just a matter of getting a bunch of dudes together and handing them swords and spears. That was the easy part. The more difficult part was logistics. How many were coming? How long would this campaign last? What sort of resistance were they expecting? What would the weather be like? There were all kinds of questions that needed to be answered because those answers would determine the type and the quantity of provisions that would be needed for this campaign. Older historians have often hand-waved this issue away, assuming that medieval armies simply looted the land as they marched. But this assumption has fallen dramatically out of favor with modern historians, and the likely truth is that relying on foraging would have been extremely risky. Because if you are regularly dispersing your army into enemy territory, just to search for food, your army would shrink every time the dinner party set out. And it would take no time at all for your enemy to realize that you were there and then start picking off your men as they gathered supplies. And this would be even more true for the force being built by the Three Kings. Because Three Kings, it turned out, could gather a lot of men. Their army was absolutely massive. And once they advanced, everyone would know where they were. Sneaking around to Nick a steak and kidney pie simply wasn't going to work. They needed supplies on hand, and preferably a supporting supply train through a secure route. So it's likely that the royal messengers were handing the nobles a list of demanded provisions. Things like food, water, horses, weapons, armors, camp workers like cooks and laborers. Everything that was needed to make this war work. And as for Olaf, he was probably a bit more hands-on, and his provisions were likely acquired right alongside the men. But Athelstan was also planning ahead. He was working out what should be done if someone was accused of attempting to murder someone through witchcraft or sorcery. And in this instance, Athelstan thought it was best if the accused underwent a threefold ordeal. If you're accused of witching someone to death or near death, you'd be taken to the local church and presented with a pot of boiling water with a rock at the bottom. You'd be expected to reach into the pot, which was deep enough to reach to your elbow, and retrieve the rock. And meanwhile, while you're sous vide your forearm, everyone around you had to pray to God to reveal the truth. Afterwards, your arm, now likely reduced to something resembling a Christmas mince, would be bound and left for three days. After those three days, your arm would be unbound and check for progress. A healing arm would mean that you're not a witch. However, if the arm was festering, well, then the town found their evil wizard and knew what to do next. And while Athelstan was working out that important detail of state, Owain, Olaf, and Constantine were gathering enough supplies to sustain their invasion. And once their campaign started, there would likely be some small amount of foraging. If the army happened to roll through a town with some sheep or a nicely stocked granary, there was no point in letting that good fortune pass them by. But they couldn't rely on good fortune to sustain them through the invasion. The kings needed a way to keep food on hand, but there was a well-known method for this, one that medieval kings had used in the past to great effect, ships. And the three kings had plenty of those. Even if Olaf left his ships behind, the Scottish Navy was enormous. According to legend, the combined army of Scotland, Strathclyde and Dublin had 615 ships, all of which were to be used for the initial assault. And those ships would carry supplies right alongside their gargantuan army. Moreover, even if they used fully half of those ships to carry things like cooking supplies, food, tents, weapons, armor, water, medical supplies, and all the other necessities of life on campaign, they still would have the other half to carry men, and that would be able to carry a force of about 10,000 warriors on their first trip. And that was just for the naval assault. It doesn't account for any forces approaching via land. And this fleet, once the invasion was dropped off, would be able to resupply all of them so long as the seas remained open. And those resupplies were likely being prepared and planned. These soldiers would need to be clothed, fed, sheltered, and kept healthy, over 10,000 of them for potentially months. And gathering supplies wasn't the only obstacle. Gathering all the soldiers together was a trick unto itself. Olaf and his Viking army were coming in from across the sea. The kings would have had to prepare a predetermined location to meet, and they also would have had to work out a time frame in which the meeting would take place. And this was no minor matter, and something as simple and common as a storm could throw it all off. So prior to the mustering, they would have had to work out when and where to meet, and it would have had to be done carefully because Olaf's army was huge, and they were still hoping to have the element of surprise. Landing in the wrong area, or being forced to idle and camp for too long, and Olaf was likely to attract attention. But luckily, Olaf was a Vikinger, and Vikingers knew to work smart, not hard. Meanwhile, Athelstan was concerned about commerce. The crown and the kingdom relied on a steady flow of taxes to keep it going. The trouble, though, was that there are ways around those taxes. If you want to sell your cow under the table, it wasn't that hard so long as you made your deal in the local village where the tax collectors weren't stationed at the time. The nobility could only tax trade if it happened in a central location. So Athelstan found a fix. He mandated by law that any trade worth more than 20 pence must be conducted within a town trade center. And while Athelstan was trying to put a stop to garage sales, Awain, Olaf, and Constantine were on the move. It's unclear how Olaf and his Viking army met with the forces of Strathclyde in Scotland. The bulk of the forces were based in the Scottish East Coast, but the Viking forces were on the opposite side, across the Irish Sea. Somehow, they needed to link up with Constantine, and sailing around the southern portion of Britain wouldn't work, since that would have immediately alerted Athelstan, which leaves us with two possible routes for Olaf to join with his allies. The first is that he might have undertook an approximately 600-mile voyage around the northern tip of Britain. This would have been an extremely dangerous option, which would have exposed his fleet to the notoriously difficult weather where the entire navy could be swept away or slammed into the rocky coast. And this route was also long and would have added even more time where the men would have had to be fed and kept healthy. But using this route, would also mean that the army could keep their ships with them, which meant that provisions would be on hand the entire time. The other open route was shorter, but overland. If Olaf took this path, he would have sailed up the Firth of Clyde, where he could have joined with King Owain of Strathclyde, and then they could leave their ships behind and jointly march overland to the Firth of Forth to finally join up with the Scots. Marching in that manner would have probably only taken a day, so it would have been significantly quicker than going around the tip of scotland having cut off about 400 miles off the journey furthermore navigating over land would have been relatively easy for the viking army as they only had to follow the antonine wall to its end but taking this route meant that they would have to leave their ships behind and they'd have to lug their supplies across the rough scottish terrain but whatever route they ultimately took in august of 937 The armies of Strathclyde, Dublin, and Scotland gathered and made their final preparations for war. Meanwhile, Athelstan was wondering how you deal with someone who gets invited to meetings, but doesn't show up. Surely that requires a law, right? I mean, who likes flakes? Not Athelstan, clearly. Because he decreed that if you fail to attend three of his meetings, you're guilty of disobedience and will be fined. Nobody stands up Athelstan. And so, while the king was establishing his employee work calendar policy, the combined armies of Scotland, Strathclyde, and Dublin advanced. The sources for what happens next are numerous, but none of them are certain. We've gleaned the story over time from local oral traditions, William of Malmesbury, Egil's Saga, the Annals, and the Chronicle. And none of these tell a consistent or total story. Furthermore, the exact location for where this battle happens a place called Brunnenburg has been entirely lost to history. Potential locations can be found as far south as Devon and as far north as Burnswark in Scotland. In the end, we're left with a tale that is half truth and half legend. And it's difficult to tell what is fact and what is embellishment. So what follows is our attempt to reconcile these accounts into a narrative. But regardless of what source you're reading, there is one thing that's very clear here. For this brief moment, the fate of England could have swung in any direction. And so, while Athelstan was determining how many psalms were to be sung on Friday, and by the way, it's 50. 50 psalms every Friday, specifically in the hopes that the king gets all he desires. Well, while Athelstan was counting his wishes, 615 ships sailed into the Humber, bristling with heavily armed warriors. This was an army that would have consisted of ten to 20,000 warriors dropped right into the heart of England and cutting off Northumbria from the rest of the kingdom. And Northumbria was at a crossroads. For years now, they've been chafing at Athelstan's style of rule. And now here was Olaf Guthrison, a man who held a valid claim to the throne, who was related to former kings who might still be fondly remembered and who was a fellow Christian thus making him a lot less scary than his father. He was also a successful war leader in a time when that commanded tremendous amounts of respect. Olaf, sailing up the Humber, might be the one to free Northumbria from West Saxon control. And so the saga tells us that Olaf and his combined army raided through Northumbria. And as he did so, large portions of it quickly came under his control. William seems to confirm this as he tells us via a poem that Athelstan allowed his enemies to despoil everything through constant raids while he spent his time at leisure, until finally he was roused by rumors of widespread devastation. And Athelstan's inaction seems like the height of folly looking back on it. But until this year, a multinational invasion had not been seen on this scale for generations. It likely sounded like an impossibility, until it happened. Furthermore, it was August. This was the tail end of the campaigning season, and it was nearly unimaginable that someone would start an invasion which could last months just as the weather was likely to turn towards fall. It was only a couple short months until freezing temperatures really set in, and there were plenty of Viking armies who had made that gamble and met their end, cold, hungry, and huddled in a muddy fort. Furthermore, the Prince of Scotland... Constantine's son was a hostage in Athelstan's court. He was a guarantee of peace. The rumors, surely coming from the north at this point, of a huge army out of Scotland and the destruction that they were causing, very well could have been brushed off as otherwise common Viking raids. And Viking raiders were a minor matter that could be handled by the eldermen. They didn't need the king for this. And so Athelstan, instead, kept his attention on whether you could sell horses overseas. You can't, by the way. But then the news came. He'd lost almost all of Northumbria. And Athelstan realized he was in deep trouble. The longer the invading kings remained unchallenged in Northumbria, the longer they had to dig in, the more his authority would be weakened. But the problem for Athelstan was that, just like the invading kings, he needed time to raise and provision an army. Just like Olaf and his allies, he couldn't rely on foraging, so he needed to figure out how to supply everyone for the campaign. And considering that he would lost most of Northumbria, he couldn't even be sure how long this campaign would last. So as Olaf and his forces brought ever more territory under their control and pressed deeper into England, Athelstan waited for his royal messengers to ride out throughout his kingdom and raise the fyrd. It was now his turn to wait and prepare. But one by one, the warbands arrived at the chosen meeting spot. And his army was large, but not as large as it had been in the past. We're told that it consisted of the firds from Wessex and Mercia, which means that East Anglia and the Welsh kingdoms apparently weren't part of this defensive force. It's not clear whether this was because they weren't called or because they didn't answer, but with the forced reforms in east anglia and the great council at cyrencester that no doubt insulted the welsh while well, athelstan had given them plenty of reasons to hold back but whatever the reason the forces of wessex and mercia would have to do but there was a problem here it wasn't all of the forces of wessex and mercia there were a lot of eldermen who hadn't arrived with their furds yet Furthermore, it's likely that whatever supply train was needed to sustain this army wasn't fully arranged yet. But Northumbria was all but lost. And if he lost Northumbria, Athelstan would probably lose the entire English hegemony. There was no third way for Athelstan on this one. He either had to win or die trying. And he couldn't wait any longer. So Athelstan and his 15-year-old half-brother, Edmund, gathered what forces they had and marched. Potentially at their side were Scandinavian mercenaries, who later lead to the writing of Egil's saga. And this does seem plausible, since what awaited him was a vast multi-kingdom army, and Athelstan would need all the help he could get. But at their present state, even with the mercenaries, his army would likely be overwhelmed by the invading forces. Numbers vary wildly as to how many joined the invading army by the time Athelstan marched. But the army of Olaf, Constantine, and Owain probably did number in the tens of thousands. And Athelstan, well, he had less, which meant that he needed to buy time and give his forces a chance to arrive. So the saga tells us that an offer was made. If the kings would cease their raids, Athelstan would agree to meet them on a battlefield where they could come to terms. Or, should it come to it, fight it out. To sweeten the pot, Athelstan offered to pick a battlefield deeper in the English countryside, which probably would have been rather enticing, since if it came to blows and the invading army won, well, then there would be plenty of ripe raiding lands nearby. For Athelstan, though, this had a few benefits. First, the English army hadn't fully mustered, so he needed time for them to arrive, and any time spent negotiating over which battlefield was appropriate would be time for the rest of the army to arrive. Additionally, if they moved deeper into England, that would cut down the travel time for any elder men who were late to the party. It would also bring the danger of this army closer to their holdings, which might encourage them to get off their asses. On the other side, Constantine, Olaf, and Owain probably had a couple reasons to want to play ball. The first was that Athelstan was a famously powerful war leader with powerful allies just across the channel. So fighting him was a risky move. And if they could resolve this without a battle, that was probably worth looking into. The second was the fact that Constantine's son, the Prince of Scotland, was Athelstan's hostage. And even though Constantine had another son, I'm pretty sure he preferred to get his spare back. And so we're told that Olaf and his army ceased their raids and agreed to march to a location called Brunember. It was a large field that lay between a dense wood and a river. Athelstan arrived first and selected the narrower position, placing his forces along a slight hill between the wood and the river. But there was a problem. He was still waiting for more of his elder men to arrive. As things stood, they were dangerously outnumbered. And this might have been where Athelstan came up with his law that mandated for every plow you had, you had to have two mounted soldiers ready to be called up. Because this was crazy. Where was everyone? But to hide his weakness, and to further buy time, Athelstan ordered his men to pitch their tents. Then he ordered them to pitch their spare tents. And then he ordered them to pitch any other tents they had on hand. In the end, they had three times as many tents as were needed. And all of them were carefully arranged on the crest of a hill. And looking at them from the enemy's position, you would think this was the edge of a tent forest. Then Athelstan ordered his men to mill around outside as if there wasn't enough room to even get inside the tents. They were doing anything they could to hide their numbers. And eventually, Olaf and his allies arrived on the battlefield. And it's not clear when he did, but whenever it was, for Athelstan, that was too late in the day to be willing to fight. There is also the issue of propriety. Were the rods of Hazel properly laid out to demarcate the battlefield? Maybe we should double check just to make sure. And this may have been Athelstan's commitment to Anglo-Saxon tradition, but he was also facing off with a multi-kingdom army armed with more tents than dudes, and he needed to buy time. Thankfully, all these things left over from a culture of ritual combat take time. Lots of time. And so while that was being carried out, he was still keeping a careful eye out for any eldermen to arrive. I also suspect that negotiations regarding the fate of King Constantine's son were also taking place during this point. And that also would have slowed things down a bit. But extra time and delaying tactics can cut both ways. And while all this negotiating and battlefield decoration was taking place, William of Malmesbury tells us that Olaf got an idea. He disguised himself as a minstrel and snuck into the English encampment. It took him no time at all to not only discover that the English forces were nowhere as big as they appeared, but he also learned the exact location of King Athelstan's tent. We're also told that Olaf was apparently a talented performer, and he gave the English such a good show that he was rewarded with fine gifts, by the king's court no less. And once his set was over, Olaf snuck back out of the encampment and returned to his allies. What Olaf didn't know, though, was that he'd been spotted by someone who recognized him, possibly one of the Scandinavian mercenaries, and he immediately reported it to King Athelstan. Now, Athelstan first wanted to know why nobody bothered to kill the Viking king when he was armed only with a harp. But this had been a debacle from the start, and so he just dealt with it as best as he could. Assuming that his tent had been located, Athelstan ordered that his quarters be moved. And then when the Bishop of Sherborne and his full complement of warriors arrived, he had them stationed in his old spot. Apparently, that's what you get when you arrive late. And with that, the king went to sleep only to be awakened by the crashing of spears on shields and men shouting and men screaming. The Viking war leaders Adils and Kringer, along with their men, had snuck behind the English lines and ambushed the king's encampment. Only now it was occupied by the unlucky Bishop of Sherborne and his men, who were desperately trying to fight them off. Athelstan's mercenaries were closest to the conflict, and so Alfgar and Thoralf raised their men and charged towards the invading Norsemen. But the Vikings had the element of surprise, and they were fully armed and armored, and they were experienced in precisely this form of war. And Alfgar's forces weren't. They were badly outmatched by the Viking warbands and were soon dispatched, fleeing headlong through the wood and out of the country for good. That left Thorolf and his men standing alone against two fully armed Viking warbands. And according to the saga, even though there were warriors nearby who could hear and see the battle including Thorolf's own brother egil no help was coming because they had been ordered to hold their ground so thorov's warband were alone but luck was on their side because somehow in the clash of the melee the viking warlord hringer fell and upon seeing this the other chief Adils ordered the retreat And at that moment, it was clear for everyone that the wait was over. The battle was coming. So in the morning, Athelstan arranged his forces. He and his West Saxons, supported by Thorof's mercenaries, would face off with Olaf and his Vikings. The 15-year-old Edmund Atheling would also be part of this contingent. Then there were the Mercians, supported by the Ferd of London, and they were placed under the command of Turketl, And they were to advance upon King Constantine and King Owain's forces. And at Athelstan's signal, the army advanced. Shields locked, and they prepared to go to work. Once they were in range, arrows were fired over the shield wall. And still they advanced. And then came the bone-shattering moment where shield wall met shield wall. And the screaming began. The bulk of the fighting was between Athelstan and Edmund's forces, who were arrayed against Olaf. This was a fierce, brutal shield-wall combat. A thrust of a spear, a flash of a sword, and another man fell. Far from the quick, violent raids that had become common in the age of the Vikings, this was a test of endurance. It just kept going. But suddenly, there was chaos in the flank. While the armies advanced, and while they fought, there was one group that stayed back, watching. The Viking warlord Adels and his men had been hiding in the woods, looking for an opportunity, and they spotted it. Athelstan and the West Saxons were towards the middle of the battlefield, but their mercenary allies under Thorolf were on the flank, which were conveniently right on the edge of the forest. If Adels and his men could defeat Thorolf's mercenaries, they might be able to roll up the entire English army. So in the midst of the melee, Adels and his men quickly moved out of hiding and fell upon Thorov's flank, enveloping his forces. Thorov's brother, Egil, whose forces had been held in reserve, had been watching for any weaknesses. And upon seeing this, he ordered the charge, and his men immediately struck Adels' flank. And what followed was a chaotic melee, where battle lines were desperately attempted to be formed, but ultimately it all devolved into a bloody mosh pit. It had become a battle into itself, while the larger battle raged around them. And that meant that Athelstan and the West Saxons would have to handle all of the Dublin Vikings on their own. Meanwhile, Turkettle faced off with the Scots, and apparently King Constantine's son had been released as a hostage by this point, because he was there on horseback leading the army alongside his father. And the fighting continued for ages. Neither side gained much traction, but both sides were suffering terrible losses. And then at some point, in the clashing of the shields and swords, disaster struck for the Scots. King Constantine's son fell from his horse and was killed. Soon thereafter, the Scottish morale began to break, and they retreated. Suddenly, Olaf and the Dublin Vikings were horrifically outnumbered. The enraged Englishmen pressed in on nearly every side, and at the head of this force was Athelstan and his brother Edmund, pressing them on even further. And then some accounts say that at this point, Athelstan's sword broke, but by miracle, it was made whole again. But regardless of the king's arms, it was clear that the tide had turned against Olaf. And shortly thereafter, what few of his men remained fled the field. Athelstan was victorious. And in the end, the annals tell us that, quote, the Prince of Scotland with 30,000, together with 800 captains about Olaf Guthrithson and about Eric Brithson, Iowa, Decca, Ivar, the King of Denmark's son, with 4,000 soldiers in his guard, were all slain, end quote. And those numbers were almost certainly inflated. But the fact remains that this was one of the most important victories in English history. Had Athelstan failed, England would likely have collapsed. The unity that he and his aunt and his father and his grandfather had worked towards for so long would all have come to an end. East Anglia would have broken away. Northumbria would have been under the control of Dublin. Mercia very well might have broken away. It all would have crumbled. But Athelstan didn't lose. He won. The English hegemony had survived. His new kingdom still existed. Whole and vast. And so Athelstan turned once again to the task of administration. He'd spent the last years making laws. But now he needed a way to enforce them. So he made a new law. For every community, every hundred there would be employed a group of 10 men, one leader and nine who worked under him. These men would travel through their hundred and gather taxes, enforce the law, and ride out in pursuit of thieves. And so with that law, Athelstan established English beat cops. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com, and we're pretty much all over social media, and you can find links to all of our various communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.